Well, Russell, we're back. We're back. Another episode slash series mm-hmm. of the Defend and Confirm podcast. What's that? I've never heard of that. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> a brief update on what's been going on with us. Very brief. Yeah. Um, when did we stop recording? It's been We're years, not even going right? to do all that. It's okay. been, yeah. I'm trying to think of what I need to update. Uh, I'm working for Sixth Avenue Community yeah. Church now. Yeah. So I'm on right. staff here with Sister you. Pastor, yep. We work together. Yep. And we have a little bit of free time. Yeah. And we have uh, a lot of resources that have been given to us by mm-hmm. AGTV. Yep. And they said, would you be willing to record again? And we said, yeah, let's make it happen. Yeah. And we we felt the need to start a new series on political theology. Yep. And that's kind of what Defend and Confirm does, right? We we look at what we think is kind of um, uh, a threat in this instance, maybe too strong of a word, maybe not. We'll see as we go through the series. But whatever we think is a threat to the gospel in a particular cultural moment— and we try to tackle it. We throw all of our resources at it. Yeah, you might even say just a thing Christians are currently wrestling with. Yeah, that's right. So we've done it with critical theory. We were a little ahead of the curve on that one. Not trying to brag. Whoa. We definitely were. Uh, CPM, DMM stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we think that there is a lot of unhelpful stuff uh, out there uh, in the in the evangelical verse. Yeah, people are talking about politics. And they're talking yeah. about politics in a different way than maybe they have in years past. Um, And, you know, if we were the clever marketing YouTube personality type, we might title this like Theonomy and Christian Nationalism (laughs) versus Neutral... No, see, you're yeah, so bad so you I've can't even come it. up with I one. I can't yeah, do this, yeah. yeah. Okay, but so we are talking about political theology. That's right. Can you just map out what this series is going to look like just briefly? Yeah, so basically this first episode is going to deal with, you know, what are what are some of our big terms? You know, what is political theology? What is a government? How should we think about these things? Okay. Uh, definitionally. And then next, I'm going to, I'm going to basically lead us through three different sort of key questions. Okay. Uh, so next episode, we're going to talk about the question of, uh, church and state. Okay. How do those two entities, how are they described biblically? How should we think about them? Should they be together? Should they be separate? And what do those, uh, descriptions mean? How should they be separate or how should they be unified? Okay. Uh, we're also going to then talk about justice, Broadly, just the concept of justice. Yeah. Justice is key to what a government does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we want to be careful with what kind of justice we think the Bible gives governments. Yeah. And a lot of our uh, issues with some different political theologies are going to start to come out through that. Uh, then we're going to talk about th- this. Um, the last question will be on the distinctions between uh, Christ's kingdom mm-hmm. and our humanly culture. The you know, the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. How, how do these two things relate and how does that relate then to our different views of political systems and political theology? All right. All of that is yet to come, but today let's get started. Let's do some definitional work. So liberalism. Mm. What do you think of when you hear the word liberal? I think of a lady working at Starbucks or some <laughs> other coffee shop with purple hair and yeah. uh, one of those septum rings. Yeah, that's not wrong. Uh, she'd probably describe herself that way. Okay. Um, we're assuming her pronouns even. I don't yeah. know if that's fair. Uh, but we've got uh, a, a version of the word liberal that's part of our 
cultural vocabulary. Yeah. It's not really how it was used generations past. Yeah. So our nation was founded on principles that we might call classically Classical. liberal. Yeah. We've talked about classical liberalism in a previous series. On critical theory. That's right. right yeah. So liberal, free, yeah. right? that's the root word, freedom. Mm -hmm. um, classical liberalism means the freedom of what? Uh, particularly the freedom of thought. Yeah. 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 Freedom of thought and then freedom to express those mm -hmm. thoughts through freedom of speech. Um, we could say freedom to own property. Yeah. Freedom to gather. Uh, lots of freedoms that we just sort of take for granted that were pretty big deal yeah. <laughs> when our uh, when, when our founders essentially enshrined these ideas into our founding documents. Um, and these freedoms are more or less under assault in many respects in our culture today. Okay. Right. So the, the values of classical liberalism, uh, they promote tolerance. And tolerance means the ability to live alongside of somebody who you disagree with. Yeah. That's going away. Right. We, we, see, we see more and more in headlines and in big cities where lots of different peoples with different ideas are clashing, the uh, inability to tolerate disagreement. D.A. Carson was talking about this 15 years ago in his yeah. book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, right? Yeah, a good yeah. example of this uh, affecting us politically. Uh, Michigan, very recently, their House of Representatives passed a bill, I think it's HB 4474, and I think it's, it's like in their Senate now. Okay. Uh, this bill basically criminalizes causing someone to feel threatened or harmed by words, mm. which would include misusing their pronouns. Yeah. Uh, and this would come with a possibility of a, a hefty fine and jail time. So this would be a, an example of, of the left side of the political spectrum in America, pushing us away from classically liberal ideas towards something where the government has more control okay. to restrain speech. Uh, you might call it statism, okay. right? The, the state has more substantially more centralized control over social and economic ideas and, and practices and, and, Christians don't all agree about what to do about this. Okay. Right? We see it, but we don't know how to respond to it. And that's kind of where a lot of this political debate among evangelicals is taking place. Okay, so it's it's uh, the increase in, in political thought and political conversation among evangelicals is really uh, a responsive act. Right? Uh, we I feel threatened. Yeah. Right? And our way of life is changing, drag queen story hour. That's and right. some of this is happening on the right as well. But yeah. it seems predominantly from the left. And so American Christians are starting to think, well, why, why is my country changing in this way? Yeah. And, you know, historically, these conversations have ebbed and flowed over time. Right. I think this conversation that's happening right now among American evangelicals is in large part a reaction to the, <coughs> to the craziness that we see around us. Yeah. So you got some Christians who are looking at this and they're saying, hey, classical liberalism was always doomed to fail. Right? Okay. It's, it's not sufficient. The, the problem they will say is you can't have a state that views everyone neutrally. Like okay. whatever religion or value system or belief system you have, yeah, sure, we'll tolerate that. It, just complete yeah. neutrality, they say, it's basically mess. leaves the back door or really the front door unlocked for some sort of paganism to come in and establish itself as the national religion. Because everyone brings their God into the public square. Yeah, that's okay. right. And, and you're not rendering an analysis on that perspective. You're just saying this is how they're thinking about yeah, it. Well, yeah, well, I'll say in many respects, they're right. Okay. 
Um, but that is sort of the motivating drive behind their rejection of a lot of classically liberal ideas. Okay. So then you know, this is an argument that would be made by um, theonomists, okay. which everybody's probably heard that term who's listening to this podcast. If you haven't, uh, theonomist, theo nomos, nomos yeah. it means uh, God's law. Mm -hmm. It's a group that we'll kind of define as we go through this series. It's hard to define what a theonomist is mm -hmm. because it's complicated. There's a lot of ideas and even within their camp, they don't all agree on the yeah. same things. Right. So we're going to sort of define it point by point as we go through our questions here. But basically they say as a, as a solution to this problem, we need to return to uh, God's law, which that sounds good, right? Yeah, who doesn't, right. who, who doesn't yeah. like God's law? And they advocate essentially a form of Christian <clears throat> liberalism. Christian illiberalism. That's right. What so, do you mean by that? So illiberalism, meaning just like the leftist illiberals in our country want to kind of rein in this idea that people can say and believe and do whatever they want. Okay. Christian illiberalism says that we want to be a liberal. We want to rein in the idea that people can say and believe and do whatever they want through the power of the state, but we want to do it in all the right ways. Sure. We want to do it in the ways that, for example, Israel did when, when national Israel under the Mosaic covenant controlled things like speech through blasphemy laws. Yeah. And so, um, again, this has caused a lot of confusion among Christians and it's led to a lot of really useful and fruitful discussions among Christians who are trying to figure out, well, why, why do I believe what I believe about politics? Does the Bible even tell me what to believe about sure. human governments? And so we want to jump right into that. Uh, mm. We want to get right in the middle of that and and walk through what what I think are basically two errors. So I've okay. I've explained the first error, which would be the Christian illiberalism. Right? We want to be a liberal in all the right ways, the way Israel was, the, the way God's law in the Old Testament dictates. Well, there's another camp, um, and this is probably the more mainstream, popular evangelical view which tends to just absorb a lot of ideas that are somewhat related to classical liberalism, somewhat related to the enlightenment, but just cultural ideas that say Christians should just stay out of all that. We should just, mm. governments should be neutral. Uh, Christians should have really very little to do with the state. We're above all that. We're holier than that. Yeah. Uh, very hands-off view, a view that would look at drag queen story hour and just be very dismissive and, and just say, this is, this is not a problem, or if it's a problem, it's not our problem. We just need to share the gospel. Okay. Uh, you know, you might, it's hard to put a name on that. You might think of that as sort of like a David Frenchism, if you're okay. familiar with him. I think both of these answers are wrong. Okay. Right? I think Christian liberalism and theonomy, I don't think that's the right answer. I think that's unbiblical. And likewise, I think it's unbiblical. Even though you do believe that we should be subject to God's law. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that's the rhetorical power of theonomy. It's not only the rhetorical power, it's what makes these conversations so difficult. Right. Because I would agree with most of what theonomists believe. Yeah. Uh, but we disagree in a very narrow, but in a very important mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Um, likewise, I think the camp that says, yeah, that, you know, we're not of this world. We need to stay out of politics and neutrality is key. Don't push our Christian values into the public sphere. I, I think that's wrong. Yeah. Though I think there's some truth to the principles that they're espousing, I don't think they're correct in their answer. Okay. And so we want to avoid the two pitfalls. We want to try and yeah. find something in between that. I, and I think there is a biblical answer to this that is in between. What do we call that? 
uh, biblical, <laughs> the biblical political view, theology. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, I could say, well, this is a Baptist uh, political theology. This is yeah. my take on political theology. I just think it's what the yeah. Bible teaches. I'm a big fan of calling it exile theology because exile theology does not say that we entirely retreat in, a, in the midst of a hostile culture. The, hmm. the Israelites certainly weren't called to do that when they were in exile, right? Yeah. Uh, but nor are they called to sort of try to get the ring themselves, right? You recognize you are in a permanent position of exile. So I th that's that's my happy term for it. There's a, there's a lot of heat in this discussion. A lot. People get really fired up about this yeah. uh, on both sides. And it's 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 funny. Both sides tend to see anyone that disagrees with them, even on a little point, as being in the other extreme. The yeah. other can't. So, which is kind of just what's happening culturally right now. That's yeah. exactly right. The 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 tribalism and yeah. the the binary way in which we view things. I want to I want to get rid of that for this series. I want to do our best to be charitable to both sides. So um, you're a liberal. So I'm a liberal. That's right. <laughs> Basically, what I mean is like when I critique theonomy. Yeah. When I critique. Uh, sort of the the mainstream pluralistic evangelistic view. I, I want to represent them accurately. Okay, I think we have a Christian duty to do that. Right. Uh, it's also interesting that as I do so, people who are on the left of me are going to call me a Christian nationalist theonomist. Yeah. And the Christian theonomist Christian nationalist group is going to call me uh, an antinomian liberal. Yeah. Again, because of that that tribalistic instinct. Sure. So. A lot of that's out of the way. I know a lot of this is pretty abstract. We're going to get into some some details. Now. Yeah, that's right. Number one, let's define political theology. All right, this is what everyone's excited about. <laughs> yeah, definitions. definitions. <laughs> you know, hey, you yeah. know that great podcast that I listen yeah. to for those definitions. It's back and it's longer per episode <laughs> by <laughs> by double. So political theology is basically the study of what God says about civil governments and our responsibilities to them. That's, no, that's all pretty we're, simple. That's all we're talking about. Yeah, give it one more time. Political theology is what God's word says about civil governments mm -hmm. and our responsibilities to them. Okay. Uh, there's really two very practical ways that the study of this topic can help you. Um, number one, we live in a participatory government, a, a, a nation that has a participatory form of government, yeah. which means... Yeah, that uh, incredibly, we actually have some say in the way that we are governed. Yeah, which is kind of rare, historically speaking. Not kind of. <laughs> Very. Very rare. Yeah, yeah. And, and that means that when you go out as a Christian and you vote, uh, we want you to know what your, what your Bible, what your God says about government so that yeah. you can be well-informed as you go out and exercise that responsibility. It, it's a rare stewardship that you have uh, in this place and time to be able to do that. Yeah. That's right. Um, I also think this is going to be a useful lesson for just helping people interact with other Christians who may disagree with them on this topic. Um, what do you mean? Well, again, a lot of heat in these discussions. Uh, not if, a lot of light. Not a lot of light. I think clarity on where do uh, where do we disagree with, for example, the theonomy camp. Okay. Where do we disagree with the Christian neutral public square camp? If what, we what can it, find those lines, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, would it be, can we not call it the Douglas Wilson camp and the David French camp? I mean, that would be more fun. It would be a little unfair. Yeah, but there's but a whole bunch fun. of, there's a whole bunch of theonomists that don't even agree with that's Douglas true, Wilson. That's true. Okay, uh, right. So yeah. he's, he's sort of his own brand of theonomy. Yeah, and that's what makes this so complicated. Yeah, you got the Rush Doonies. The, yeah. I can't say just theonomy and capture everything. That's true. Um, yeah. 
So I like Christian liberalism, not catchy, not, uh, catchy not super all. clear, yeah. kind of vague, but that at least gives me a broad enough yeah. brush to capture most of what we're talking about. Okay. So we're not going for sexiness. Uh, if we were, we'd be a different <laughs> podcast. I don't know. Something like Room for Nuance, maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, wow. <laughs> so fire. So, <laughs> so I, I think when we find where these lines of disagreement are, like really narrow down, like, what are we disagreeing about? Okay. It's going to help people be more charitable. Yeah. It's going to help people think more clearly and see more clearly, not only where that disagreement is, but where we do actually agree. Yeah. Uh, and I right. think a lot of good can come from that. Clarity is kindness. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I know this doesn't sound fun. It's kind of like, uh, you know, physical therapy. Okay. Like, hey, if you want if you want to solve this problem in your body, you got to go do these boring, silly exercises over and over again for eight weeks. Yeah, we're, we're going to go and we're going to do some biblical theology to set us up for our political theology. Okay, so uh, you're saying we need to kind of understand a little bit more on a, at a macro level before we narrow in. Yeah, biblical theology, sort of with broad brushes. What's the storyline of the Bible yeah. from Genesis to Revelation? Yeah, uh, we're going to look at that storyline through the lens of covenant. Okay. And this is important. If we if we okay. look at it through the lens of covenant, biblical theology is sort of like. Do you remember malls, shopping no. malls? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So back when we were young, people used to go to these gigantic indoor buildings, mm -hmm. uh, and there were places that sold like gross pretzels and earrings. Yeah. You and, got all the free samples in the food court. Yeah. Yeah. So when you went into the mall, there was always a big like billboard looking thing. What yeah. do you call that? A like sign. a kiosk. Kiosk. Yeah. There yeah. it is. And it had a map. And right. on the map, you always walk up. And before you start looking for the store you want to go to, you identify what? I'm here. Yeah. It's the you yeah. are here star yeah. or arrow. If you don't identify where you are in the mall, you can't find where you're going. If you don't identify where you are in God's story of the Bible, specifically through the lens of covenant, yeah. you're not going to understand your responsibilities to your government today, okay. nor will you understand your government's responsibilities before God today. Mm. So that's where we want to begin. Okay. Um, government, another definition. <laughs> uh, government is really just an, a ruling authority over an organization. Okay. So they establish who's in charge. Um, they, they, they establish how people are put in charge. They need to recognize where their authority comes from. Uh, and they have some sense of what they can and can't do with that authority. These are all descriptions of sort of the things government relates to. Okay. When we talk about government, we're usually thinking like the state, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the nation. Yeah. But there are other kinds of governments. Well, yeah. If, if by government you mean the way that God's authority flows down through human society, you might say that the home is a government. Yeah. Right? The home, yeah, that's you right. The church has a government? It's an right? authority structure. That's right. It's a polity. Yeah. Uh, when we say government throughout the rest of this lesson, I'm really talking about the state. The state, yeah. Because uh, that's the civil government that we're aiming at here yeah. with political theology. So here's what I want to show. As we discuss the biblical theology of God's covenants, I want to show that the, the Christian illiberalism camp, your theonomists and your establishmentarians and I'll define that word later. Uh, they're wrong because they're attempting to apply authority structures given to Israel in the Mosaic Covenant by God yeah. to modern nations that are not in that same covenant and do not have that same authority. Pause, stop the tape. If if you're if you're like listening to this in the car ride on the way to work, or if you're watching on YouTube, listen, 
go back. Well, you know, instead of them having to go back, Russell, you just say that again because it's so important. It's almost the linchpin of everything else you're going to say for the rest of this series. That's say exactly. it again. Okay, so the Christian liberalism camp. Yeah. We sounds uncharitable. I'm trying to be charitable. Yeah. Theonomists, establishmentarians, big Christian government camp. They're wrong because they view our government today as having the same authority structures and authorizations from God okay. as was given to Israel in the yeah. Mosaic Covenant. Yeah. And yet our modern governments, governments are not in the Mosaic Covenant. That's they right. don't have those same The United States of, of America is not under the Mosaic Covenant. Right. And they would acknowledge that, but their the theology the, yeah. doesn't seem to acknowledge that. Okay. There's, there's a disconnect. And you're um, going to tell us what covenant we are under. I am. And I'm also going to repeat this point uh, frequently throughout, and I'm going to make a really pointed argument for it in a later episode. Okay. All right. So that is a linchpin. You're exactly okay. right. All right. I also want to show, and I think our, our theonomist brothers would say yes and amen to everything I'm going to say on this point, that the religious neutrality camp mm -hmm. is also wrong. And yeah. they're wrong because they fail to see that all governments, all human governments are under covenant with God. They, they're they're given their authority by God and yeah. they have responsibilities to the, to him that they can't ignore. Okay. Those are the two ditches. Yeah. So where does our story of covenant begin in the Bible? Ooh, does it begin with, some say Adam. Uh, yes, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, it's not as explicit a covenant as you see in other places. Uh, like the scripture. whole ceremony with Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. But in the garden, we see God making a covenant with Adam. Uh, he's God's created the gu the garden as he designed it to be. It's good. Adam and Eve live in this garden. They rule uh, under his rule. Right. They submit to him. And in doing so, they uh, God commissions Adam to be fruitful and have dominion mm -hmm. over all of the earth. You that's what it means in, to image God. That's exactly right. To reflect God's glory like a, like a little mirror to yeah. all of creation. So Adam was like a little king imitating God in this new creation. Yeah. Uh, we see this in Genesis 1, and we see that commission in Genesis 1, 28. And, and this is a type of government uh, that we see established, especially once we see that Adam and Eve are to have offspring, right? This is the, the government of family we already talked yeah. about. He's given right. them authority. He's established the family government. Um, and yet we know that it doesn't last, Okay. Right? The, the Adamic covenant was for Adam and all of his offspring, all yeah. of humankind, uh, meaning it's universal, right? Uh, and that covenant was broken by Adam and Eve, mm. right? So that's that's the fall. That's Genesis three. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve attempted to overthrow God's rule, yeah. and they sought to de-god God. Right. Now, does that mean the Adamic covenant went away? No. No. We know from, for example, Romans five. Yeah. That all men are either in Christ or yeah. under Adam. Under yeah. Adam, right? Yeah. That that covenant relationship is still there. Let me pause you real quick. You yep. said that this was a universal covenant. Uh, this is important for our listeners mm -hmm. to, to, to hear and note because we're going to keep coming back to this. We're going to talk about universal covenants yeah. and special or unique covenants. That's exactly right. Okay. Let me give you a picture of what that should look like in your mind. Imagine planet Earth and there's a garden and then there's Adam and Eve and little little people start to flow out from their, their multiplying. You got people yeah. all over the Earth. This Adamic covenant is like a big umbrella. Okay. A um, canopy. Wait, what? Umbrella or umbrella? <laughs> umbrella. Okay. It's, I'm, I'm, it's so, just so our listeners know, it is so cold in this room. That's, and yeah. I'm trying not to shiver, but occasionally it's making me sort of mispronounce words, I guess. <laughs> hey, I'm, I wouldn't have it any other way. 
So imagine right. this universal covenant is like a canopy over all of them, meaning they're under that covenant structure. All human beings yes. under this universal. Okay. Yeah, I'm not literally describing a thing in the heavens. Right. I'm just <laughs> the firmament. To, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm just trying to tell you this is how the structure of that covenant okay, works. Gotcha. If you're on earth, yes. you're under that. Everyone's under the Adamic right. covenant. Okay. So then through the fall, obviously the consequences of the fall are many. Covenant uh, curses. And devastating. Yeah. yeah, these are the covenant curses. Uh, God promises that it leads to death, and it does. It mm -hmm. leads to pain and suffering, uh, the corruption of every relationship. And all this culminates, of course, in the second death, which will be the eternity of separation from God, uh, being under his wrath for eternity in hell. Yeah. Now we're jumping right into the next universal covenant. Okay. That's the covenant God makes with Noah, okay. the Noahic covenant. So Think of this as like fast forwarding through your Bible timeline a little bit. Genesis 3 to Genesis 6. That's right. Mankind. Oh, or to Genesis 9. Genesis Noah 9. Noah begins Genesis yes. 6. Yes, Genesis 9. So mankind's gotten super wicked, right? Okay, the the yeah. wickedness of mankind has grown and grown until the Bible says Every basically. thought and intention of his heart is evil. That's yeah. exactly okay. right. So God does what God does. He purges the earth of everyone except Noah and his family. And he does that through the ark. Yeah, and the flood. So when the ark settles on dry ground, Noah leaves the ark with his family and God makes another covenant with Noah. And this covenant, like the Adamic covenant, is universal in scope. Okay. Meaning if you're on planet earth, this covenant applies to you. Okay. Uh, what? Just for our listeners' sake, go ahead and read Genesis 9, 1 through 9. Okay. All right. Uh, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Now that sounds familiar. Mm, it's a repetition mm. of what we see in Genesis one twenty eight. That's right. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. So that's that dominion language from Genesis 1. So in many ways, Genesis 9 is a recapitulation of Genesis 1 yeah. after that wrath. Okay. Into your hand they are delivered. Every, mo uh, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants... I give you everything. Here we have a difference. Uh, yeah, death is in the world now. Yep. That's right. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, and I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." which is, again, back to Genesis 1. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So pretty explicit. Pretty explicit. Uh, let's, let's just pause for a second. What's recompense? Uh, when you pay something back, when you yeah. deliver justice. That's right. That's Giving people what they deserve. What we see here is very important to pause and note. God is authorizing the shedding of blood by man because of the shedding of blood of man. Okay. Do you see that? Yeah. So we see that if I shed somebody's blood, my blood too will be shed. Okay. Not by God himself, but by God's decree through other people. Mm -hmm. That's right. What we see here is the authorization to use physical force to punish wrongdoers. This okay. is physical co coerci coercive force used in the pursuit of justice, recompense. That is the job of civil governments. Mm. So what we see is basically God establishing civil government. He's created a new authority structure 
didn't exist before. As the, the rebirth of humankind after the destruction of the earth. That's right. right. Prior, we had the government of family. Now we have the government of family and something above the government of the state. Yeah. This is civil government. Okay. This is really sort of the, the genesis of all human governments flows yeah. from this covenant with all mankind. And this covenant too, as you said, is universal. That's right. Okay. Why, let's think biblically for a second, why would God establish this use of coercive force in the pursuit of justice? Why would he create governments at this point in biblical history? I don't know. Why? Well, what just happened before the flood? Destruction. Yeah. And destruction because? Rebellion, right? Total rebellion. Yeah. The world is full of evil. Basically, he's given human beings the gift of government to mm -hmm. restrain evil. It flows perfectly from the logic of the biblical storyline. Like, look how wicked the world became. Yeah. So much so that God had to destroy it. Now he's instituted an authority structure to restrain that wickedness. Mm. Which brings us to the purpose of government, which okay. is the preservation of human life on earth. How long does this covenant last? Genesis. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Did you want to take, take a stab at that? No, no, no. Sorry. You were saying, how long does this uh, Noahic covenant last? Yeah. Okay. This covenant lasts, Genesis 8, 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Well, no, you just went one chapter back mm. from Genesis 9. Yes. How, how does that work? Uh, so in Genesis 8, you see God setting up the order of things prior to issuing this covenant with mankind. Okay. Right. Um, and he's basically speaking in terms of, I'm not going to judge the world again the way I did before. Mm -hmm. And for the rest of human history, yeah. it's not going to be judged in the same way. And then Because this is, I'm instituting government. And then he institutes yeah. the government okay. that's the tool by which he will keep that from happening. That's right. He'll constrain the evil so that he doesn't have to come back and destroy it again. That's right. That's right. So if you think, man... God should come down and destroy the world because of how dark and scary and evil it is. Actually, this is the world with God's constraining hand at <laughs> this work. This is an improvement. Yeah. yeah. Total depravity much? Yeah. So after the Tower of, of Babel, humans... Of what? How do you say it? I say Babel. Yeah, of course you do. You, how do you say R.C. Sproul? R.C. Sproul? <laughs> yeah. You say Sproul, right? I do. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm a little country sometimes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay, so the Tower of Babel. Yep, humans break up into nations. They have different rulers, different languages, uh, variously using their different governments to pursue justice throughout their nations. Okay. Uh, often not well. Often not justly. Predominantly not Predominantly well. <laughs> not well and not justly. Even up yeah. through today, predominantly not. Yeah. But what I want you to notice, again, is that this is a covenant that God has made with humanity in common. So okay. universal. Imagine, again, all of the earth with little nations scattered all around and little kings and little senates and little rulers. So you're saying that uh, Xi Jinping and the essentially communist government in China is under this covenant from Genesis 9? 100%. Every government in Africa is under this covenant from Genesis 9? Every government in Africa gets its authority. Okay. Uh, from God. The United States government. It is derived from God. government. Yep. Right? State, local, national. 100%. Okay, just wanted to be clear. Okay, go ahead. I also want you to see that there's something new going on here. Right? So we have no indication in the Bible prior to, to now, Genesis 9, that anyone was ever allowed to bear the sword against wrongdoers, mm. to, to pursue justice with their own human hands against people who've, who've done evil. Yeah. We actually have some examples that seem to indicate exactly the opposite. Like Cain? Cain. Yeah, Cain, uh, was Cain, after killing his brother, deserving of death? Yes. 
Why? We know from God's law. To murder someone is yeah. a sin worthy of a death, death yeah. physical and eternal death. And yet God doesn't allow that. In fact, to go out and pursue Cain and kill him would not have been an act of justice with authority derived from God. It would have been an act of usurping authority from God and doing what God had not given humans the ability to do yet. And in fact, God put the mark of protection on Cain even as he sent him out. Yeah, yeah. which was a, a mark of warning yeah. to anyone who might try and do what only God at that point mm. was was mm. allowed to do. Yeah, Very important, very critical. Keep that in mind. We're going to revisit that again in the future, and it, there's a reason for it. Yes, sir. All right. So I'm not going to cover every covenant. I'm going to do a little fast forward here to the uh, Abrahamic covenant, and Aww. then we're going to go... <laughs> We're going to go to the Mosaic Covenant and the okay. New Covenant. So I'm, Genesis I'm, 9, now we're going to Genesis 12. 12. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip the Davidic Covenant. I'm going to skip Jacob. There's, there's yeah, other... Yeah, yeah. I'm going to skip all that stuff. Uh, so Abrahamic Covenant would be the first covenant that we see made that is not common to all men. It's not universal. No, it's special. It's unique to Abraham and his okay. offspring. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we see this special covenant is made where basically God tells Abraham he's going to give him this special land, and through his descendants, God is going to reestablish his kingdom on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a particular person. It it's will Abraham. have a universal impact. 100%. But it's not a universal covenant. Yeah, and Abraham is even living in a nation that has in itself uh, obligations to God under the Noahic covenant mm -hmm. and the Adamic covenant. In Ur, right? Yeah, he's in Ur. And, and so this nation itself is under these other covenants. Abraham's under those covenants too. But right. Abraham is also under this unique particular covenant between him and God, where God promises through his offspring all these blessings. When he comes under this unique covenant with God, you know, walks through the dead carcasses and the... Is he removed from the Adamic and Noahic covenants? No, he's not under the Adamic covenant in the sense that he's still under the curse mm -hmm. um, because of God's grace. But for example, he's still under the Noahic covenant. He still has to acknowledge the authority structures, for example, the government of Ur yeah. that God has put there in place. Uh, he's not exempted Abraham from being right. uh, part of the world that's under these covenants. If Abraham unlawfully sheds human blood his blood must be shed, right? That universal principle is still, still in play. There's nothing about Genesis 12 that undoes Genesis 9. That's right. Okay. He's, he's in a sense, uh, sort of the first like exile. He's called out of his homeland, right? right? He right. leaves his homeland, wanders as a sojourner under other authorities, other lands, other rulers, uh, as he makes his way towards the promised land that okay. God's promised him. Uh, next, Mosaic Covenant. Okay. I, I know these are... There's a lot more that could be said. Sure. Yeah, well, we just want to hit the highlights so you can see my my points on political we're theology. We're doing a here. biblical theology of political theology. Okay. Yes. So God's promise is partly seen in Abraham's life. Right. Uh, but ultimately it's it's it leads then the fulfillment of that promise comes into the nation of Israel, mm -hmm. who are his offspring. Yes, yeah, right. Right. God saves them from slavery, calls them out of Egypt, forms a covenant nation with Israel. Uh, Mount Sinai, Moses yeah. receives the law, and the, the law is a covenant between God and his special people. Well, let's pause there. It, it's important to note that the diff one of the main differences between the covenant with Abraham and Moses is that it goes from familial to national. That's right. Right. So whereas Which it, is a re Genesis 1, Genesis 9. Yeah. Right? We, you see the same thing. So we have a, a, a particular covenant with a particular person who's living amongst other nations. Mm -hmm. And now you have that person's descendants, 
which are still in a special relationship with God yeah. that no other nation enjoys. That's right. The special covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And yet rather than calling them to live under the authority of some other Gentile pagan nation, right. he's making a nation of them. That's right. So here we have the weddedness of the covenant and the national identity. And he gives them the law. And the law is all encompassing. It relates to the way they eat, drink, fight, all their relationships, all their worship. We see this law summarized in the Decalogue, That's right. the Ten, Ten Commandments, commandments. Yeah. Uh, but it flows into every area of life. Um, God gives them covenant promises, covenant covenant curses. Mm -hmm. Right. So obey me, get good things, get blessings, right. disobey, and my judgment will be swift. That's right. See more of that in Deuteronomy. Yeah. So because of this relationship between covenant and nation that God establishes with the Mosaic Covenant, Israel is a theocracy. So God's people are governing themselves under the authority of God by the dictates of God's law. Okay. Uh, this is distinctly different, again, from Abraham's situation, where he's under a government, but it's the government of Ur, okay. or the government of whatever nation he happened to be in at the time. When he went into Egypt, if he would have stayed there, he would have been under the, the authority. Under of the, the authority of the Egyptian yeah. government. Okay. That's right. So Israel, of course... <laughs> Cycles between rebellion and faithfulness over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, we see God's mercy and God's judgment repeatedly throughout the storyline. Always God preserves a remnant of his people for himself. The true Israel. Uh, ultimately, they're exiled from Israel. Mm -hmm. Babylon comes in and God uses Babylon to judge Israel and uh, they're taken into exile. They're mm -hmm. taken out of the promised land. Yeah. Uh, a reversal of what happened with Abraham, right? Abraham was amongst yep. the pagans. He's brought into this special, right? So now it's as as sin increases, the decreation of the covenant is increasing That's right. as well. Uh, they're called to submit to foreign pagan governments mm -hmm. as they live in exile in Babylon. And God, during this time, sends prophets who point forward to a time where God is going to act decisively through his king, through the Messiah, to fulfill all the promises that right now don't really look like they're going to be fulfilled. Right? Okay. This is a very bleak and dark time in Israel's history. And also establish the the, the perfect and final government. Right? Yes. Establish well, the true kingdom. We see the inauguration of that true kingdom in the next covenant, okay. which is the new covenant. So mm. God himself takes on flesh, comes to earth as the second and final Adam, where the first Adam plunged the world into sin, this, this last Adam is going to bring eternal life, bring us out of the death and the curse that sin brought. Okay. Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God. And, and this is a fancy word that inauguration just means it's the beginning of his reign. Yeah, that's right. Jesus as king. Now, there's some differences here in the new covenant, between the new covenant and specifically the, the Mosaic covenant. The New Testament people are not a covenant nation. Right? We don't live in a particular geographical location with one unified government handed to us by God. There's no Christian. There's no Christian king. What what we always say is the old covenant was uh, political, spiritual, and ethnic in nature. Yeah. Right. Political, you were under the kingship of Yahweh, and then later kings under his kingship. Uh, spiritual, we understand that. And then uh, uh, what was the third one I said? Ethnic. ethnic. That's yeah. right. Uh, you know, descendants of Abraham. Yes. Christians are not descendants of anyone in particular. We mm -hmm. just share in the faith of Abraham. Spiritual descendants. That's right. Yep. And then we don't have a Christian king or a Christian government. That's right. And you may be in a point in history where you have a king who is a Christian, yes. but not in the same sense of the Christian government that that Moses was handed on Mount Sinai. And, and right here, some people may want to stop and say, well, actually, we do think that there should be 
a, a Christian government. Yeah. Well, but what we're going to argue is that the New Testament in no way prescribes a Christian civil government, a Christian Correct. state. Okay. So Christians in the New Testament are an international people. There are Christians all over the world right now that are obligated to submit to rulers who are not Christians. China, Chile, right, whatever, That's United right. States. Let, let's look at this through the lens of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, mm -hmm. he is under the Genesis 9 Noahic Covenant as mm -hmm. a citizen of Rome. Because it, yes it's common no? to all people. It's common to all people. And that includes he's, Christians. But he's also under the new covenant, the special covenant, the unique covenant with his true and high king, his Lord, Jesus. That's right. Okay, and those that's not in conflict for Paul. No, it's it's why you see Paul submitting to the emperor. It's why it's yeah. why Peter says the same thing. You have I, to I think, honor your rulers. Yeah, that's right. And it's why in the New Testament you don't ever see any attempt from any of the apostles to try to Christianize secular government. Yes. Yeah. You you see the attempt to convert secular leaders. That's right. Uh, before the king and he's like, "Well, I got you here." That's right. <laughs> yeah. And but that's an important distinction and it's a yeah. distinction we're going to revisit when we start to deal more directly with the idea that some of our listeners may have heard that we need a Christian government. Okay. Uh, I am all for our, our leaders being Christians. Amen. Let's pray about that all the time. Yeah. But that's different than an, an institution being described as Christian. Yeah. Uh, and there's all sorts of issues with that that we're going to unpack, unpack later. Yeah. So Jesus is the answer to all these covenants, right? He fulfills, in some sense, all of them. He's, an, he's the answer to the curse of, of the covenant with Adam, uh, he's the offspring of Abraham, and he is, through him, belief in him, we are Abraham's offspring, mm -hmm. spiritually speaking. He's also the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. He's, he's the fulfillment of Israel. He's the true Israel. That's right. So that's why we see him, for example, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is an important text, especially when we start dealing with theonomy. Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. So... This is our biblical theology, right? This is true Israel today. True Israel is the church, right? That's On right. Pentecost, the remnant of true Israel, at least the majority of the remnant of true Israel, there are still Jews who were saved after Pentecost, yeah. uh, became the church. Yeah. We see the imagery in Romans 11 of a tree, right? The, the tree is God's people, yeah. and there's some dead branches, and God lops them off, right. and then God grafts in some branches from a wild olive tree. These are the Gentiles mm -hmm. that have been added into the, the family of God. Okay. So he doesn't plant a new tree, right? right. It's not replacement theology. Uh, he doesn't chop down the old tree. He doesn't have two different trees. Right. So, you know, Jews, Jews over here, Gentiles over here. He makes us like one people. Like at some Christian conferences, you know? Yeah. He makes us one people. Okay. Uh, I caught that joke. Yeah, thanks, man. <clears throat> so, so, go ahead. No, you go. No, you go ahead. No, sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, so we're basically done. Uh, we're with the biblical storyline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of this story, right, Christ returns yeah. permanently, ends history, and reigns perfectly as the true king, the true governor, the, yeah. the, the real government we've always aspired for and longed for, yeah. a perfect ruler. Yeah. That's the end of the story, okay. in, in a sense. Yeah. It's the beginning of eternity, but it's the end of this story. Yeah. Uh, here's why we've gone through all that trouble is because you're not going to understand our arguments against the two big errors and, and various versions right. of them unless you understand the building blocks of covenant history. Yeah. So let's let's look at Christian illiberalism, theonomy and establishmentarianism and the, the big Christian government camp. This camp is wrong because in a sense, they're treating all governments today as Israel. Mm -hmm. 
they, they don't, they're not confusing covenants. They're not saying, oh yeah, all the nations are in the Mosaic covenant. That's not what they're doing. Yeah. But they're assuming that all governments today have the same authorization to enforce God's law as Israel did. Mm. And that authorization was unique to Israel. And it was unique, uh, not just because Israel's unique, but because of God's unique salvation historical purposes related to that covenant and the people of Israel. So once the nation of Israel was officially done away with, which we would understand to be like fully and finally demonstrated with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's right. right? But I mean, it was accomplished on the cross, fully and finally demonstrated through the destruction of the temple. The Mosaic covenant has been fulfilled and is no longer practiced in the same way. Yes. And so the theonomy camp would say, yes and amen. But the way that Israel was governed, the way they applied God's law in yeah. their society was the right way to do it. And that's okay. what God wants all governments to do. Okay. And now we would look back at our covenants and say, well, what covenant is America under or Russia under or okay. China under? Okay. It's the Noahic covenant. Right. That's where they get their authority from to govern. Yeah. The Noahic covenant says very little. And what it does say is a very narrow kind of justice. It's a narrow prescription for governments that looks nothing like what God authorized Israel to do at yeah. the time of the Mosaic Covenant. So listeners, pay close attention. Narrow justice, that theme is going to come up again and again. Particularly, we're going to do a whole class on it. That's right. Okay. Uh, second, the Christian neutral government camp uh, is wrong because they miss that even though the world and its rulers and governments are not in covenant with God okay. uh, through the New Covenant, they are in covenant with God through the Noahic Covenant which means the most wicked ruler on earth. Yeah. Uh, take your best guess of who that is. I, I can think of a couple. <laughs> yeah. That ruler derives his or her authority from God mm. and owes God allegiance and honor and respect. And we can't view governments as being distinct and different from the ruler who gave them the authority that they wield. Okay. Um, and so there is a sense in which when these these groups, this this kind of camp says, yeah, you don't bring your religion into the public square. Don't bring your religion into politics. You know, vote, vote, but don't think about scripture as you vote. Yeah, you know, those right. sorts of things. That couldn't be more wrong. Right. Because we're we're talking about a, a gift from God. And you have to understand government through that lens. That's right. As Jonathan Lehman, uh, his illustration is fantastic. He says, imagine that this the public square is has a metal detector and everyone, or instead of detecting metal, it detects gods. Yeah. Everyone who walks into the public square, including politics, brings their gods with them. It always is going to beep when you walk through that, that That's detector, right? right? There so is no neutrality. Non-God, right? Yeah. You can't go into the public square and say, oh, I'm being secular and neutral. No, your values come out and your values reflect the God that you worship. That's right. All right, so that's a wrap for this episode. That's it for this episode. Next episode? We are going to be talking about church and state. Church and state. What are they? How do they go together or not go together? Or do they go together? Okay, well, uh, let me pray, and then we'll close. Lord, thank you for giving us grace as we've recorded this episode. We pray that uh, if anything that we have said is true and in accordance with your word and your gospel, that you will uh, use this episode well uh, to produce an abundance of fruit in the church and... uh, to increase the glory of your name among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.